So please, finally, welcome Nate and Matthew. Hello. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, I think that uh, all of your stories and your activism and the stuff you're doing are very, very interesting. And I think that let's, first of all, maybe if you can start just a bit telling a bit about yourself. Where are you from? How did you find yourself dealing with, with queer issues? Yeah. Uh, Matthew, would you like to start or should I just go ahead and jump on here? No, so, I'm sorry, Nate Looney, and I serve as the Director of Community Safety and Belonging on the Jewish Equity, Diversity, Inclusion team at Jewish Federations of North America. Uh, I'm originally from Los Angeles and have lived a lot of other places, but currently call uh, the Marina Del Rey, Venice Beach area my home. And I think that my entry into queer activism started at a very young age probably pre-teen teenager in high school from being a part of the jewish queer not the jewish queer alliance the gay straight alliance in high school on forward so it's always been a part of the backdrop and you know i think that currently it's become more of a part of my activism and identity given the current climate in the world and the work that i do for jewish federations Should I jump in? I guess it's your turn, Matthew. <laughs> okay. My name is Matthew Nuriel. I'm the Community Engagement Director for an organization here in the U.S. called Jimena, which is an acronym for Jews Indigenous to the Middle East and North Africa. We work to achieve recognition for the almost one million Jewish refugees and their descendants who are from the Middle East and North Africa. Um, outside of that, um, I work in the sphere of digital activism. Um, and it's generally surrounding my intersecting identity as Iranian, as queer, and as Jewish. Born in the UK, moved to Los Angeles when I was 15 years old, 15 years old, sorry, and been here ever since. And as far as when I began my activism, it just... I always had it within me to be outspoken, but I lost that for a long time. In at some point in my... I want to say late teens, I started to lose my sense of self and delve into trying to fit into what I thought I was supposed to be. And I didn't really get a sense of self again until I was well into my 30s and kind of when it picked back up for me. Because it was like I got to this place in my life where I was like, I'm tired of trying to lean into one part of my identity or the other in order to appease whoever I'm around, whether it be a Jewish space, an Iranian space, or a queer space, and that's when I said, you know what, F it, I'm part of all of these spaces, and I'm going to show up as much as I, I can, or as comfortable as I am within my full, as my full self. Um, and once I started doing that is when I started being a loud ass again, and just like saying whatever it is that I needed to say, and it, and then the next level of that really kicked into high gear in May of 2021 what the Sheikh Jarrah situation happened in Israel. There was a really big uproar here in the States and we experienced a lot of anti-Semitism. And then, so I focused a lot on Jewish issues. And then also last year with the um, murder of Masa Jina Amini, it really kicked me into high gear in terms of activism for uh, the free Iran movement. Can you, can you please explain a bit about um this murder and and generally was there any or several 
specific events in the last year that you felt like both of you that made some spark, made some urgency um, for to do what you do or to decide? No, there are so many queer people around the world and so many they say, I, I don't have to read news or to deal with this stuff. I'm just like a regular person and who just lives uh, regular like everyone else. So what made that, that spark? Like, like, I wonder if it's an individual spark or if there's something which is uh, bigger than that that affected uh, us as communities in a more la larger I, I, way. In some ways, I could say, take your pick. Of which instance, there's been a few. The first one that comes to mind is the elections in Israel last year. And that sort of shifted my my work around focusing on how we could be supporting the LGBTQ leaders and organizations in Israel, uh, given potential changes that were that folks were anticipating. And in a lot of ways, in the backdrop while focusing on Israel, thinking about here within the United States, the attack, uh, the legislative attack on transgender individuals and LGBTQ folks here. And you have that going on, you have what's going on in Israel, and then also you have the Israel-Hamas. And the response from folks that would naturally be allies uh, showing up in a different way. So I feel like each one of those pieces has had an impact in its own way. But I think that the underlying thing here is the fact that um, everyday people have an impact on the overall social narrative that we're experiencing. It's we're see, We've seen since October 7th, folks that uh, were once making TikTok videos about, I don't know, cooking or doing makeup are now geopolitical experts. And those are the folks that people are following. Uh, and it's creating an environment of misinformation that moves much faster than any sort of fact checking. So I think that there are quite a few pieces at play here. Yeah, I definitely have to agree with Nate on this. There's a lot of moving pieces here and it's not just one singular spark. There are various sparks that happen, but I think Nate would agree that they all around our identities. You mentioned Iran when I spoke about Iran. What was the spark in that? It's not a queer movement per se, but as I always say, it 100% is a queer movement. And I think that the broader queer community of global queer community did a really big disservice in not jumping on board with that movement because the people that suffer the most with under the Islamic Republic regime are the LGBTQ plus people. They have zero rights. Gay men are being hung from cranes, not even for protesting. I mean, people are being hung from cranes just because they were protesting, right? Gay men are being hum hung from cranes just for existing. So it's very much a queer issue. And that, um, in the broader picture, is why I feel the need to insert myself within certain spaces, because it's a reminder, like, LGBTQ plus people are part of these communities. We're part of the Jewish community. We're part of the Iranian community. And it's important for our voices to be included and heard. I feel like you know that for queer communities, uh, no matter in what country, and also from a global perspective, we're kind of maybe missing um, some kind of uh, a queer UN, United Nation, or a queer parliament, a global parliament, where we can really have a kind of some kind of a global uh, strategy, which I feel that we're a bit lacking of that. I don't know what it's like for you, but. Um, I've been in the last way. I've been boycotted uh, 
quite many different queer activists um, outside of Israel. And for me being in, in, in high school, uh, many times I was not accepted by, um, by, the, by class or places where I've been for being an, an LGBT or queer. And I was, uh, don't you find it to be a bit strange that people who are supposed to know what it's like to be different or minority, but suddenly they're boycotting others? This is a part of what I view, and I, again, I'm sure Nate would agree, is a much larger, what I would call a propaganda machine that's been in place for a long time that affected the left. And people on the left and the far left are there generally because there's a level of compassion and a level of a need to fight oppression. When it comes to this is issue, I feel like it's been misplaced and it's got, gone. The pendulum has swung so far in the other direction that it's like horseshoe theory. It's the far left has become incredibly intolerant. So the narrative is if you're on the left within certain issues and when it comes to lgbtq plus issues it's if you're on the left within lgbtq plus issues then you have to be on the left with abcd and all these other issues as well and israel palestine israel is portrayed as the oppressor palestine is the oppressee israel's right palestinian issue is left as there's a lot of illogic within that in and of itself but unfortunately a lot of people who are part of the queer community have taken on the stance of we're not, we don't want anything to do with anybody who is, quote, part of the oppression. And it's a shame because it's a very, actually a very illiberal way of thinking. And it excludes many of us. And I find myself in terms of queer spaces, again, my voice is being silenced just because it doesn't fit the narrative. And there's no, space for that instead of people being like that's interesting if this person is a person of color and they're queer and they're saying that they're a zionist maybe we should listen to what they're saying maybe what we've been taught isn't wholly accurate but that that that, that would be the liberal way to do things but that's not happening so i would say the liberals have forgotten how to be liberal well, you know, it's funny because i often say that a lot of folks went to bed october 6th feeling like progressives and then woke up uh, October 7th in an identity crisis in, in a lot of ways. Mm. And I think it's also really challenging because what it requires us to do is the opposite of what we've been working towards. Like for me, it's really important to bring all aspects of my identity to the forefront in all the spaces that I move in. As a black, queer, Jew of color, all of these things, being Afro-Latino, child of an immigrant, all of these pieces inform who I am and I'm seeing that now in the past, what, 45, 46 days, what's happened is I have to hide a piece of my identity if I want to exist in queer spaces. And like a tangible example would be, it's the day before Thanksgiving here in the States. And historically for queer folks, that's a time where people go out and party. It's issues of being queer are the same here as everywhere else. People having to be around their family members is stressful. So they go, people go out and party. I saw an invitation to an event, and in the tagline of the main promoter was, From the River to the Sea. 
And so immediately for me, I was like, actually, I don't think I want to go to this event. And seeing time and time again, the ways that there are these underlying messages telling us that as queer Jews, we are not welcome in certain spaces unless we fall in line with a set of idea ideas that may not either be based in reality or based on any sort of tangible information. Um, it, it is, it's an extremely weird and ostracizing time in that way. It's tough. It's really tough. As a queer movement or queer activists, like maybe we, we would accept something which is a bit different and also about this definition. For some people who don't know about the power of the words they use, for instance, for, from the river to the sea to a person who has no idea what it means, it can sound very nice, rivers and sea, but it's actually from the river to the sea, uh, very beautiful words for talking about genocide. Yes, about so it's about genocide. Let's let's say it like so many words are being. I, a few days ago here in Portugal where I'm visiting now, so I opened a grinder. I'm still single, I have to say. <laughs> if anyone knows about it. <laughs> and I yeah. woke up the morning and I have her linked forward to my Instagram. I, I open grinder in the morning. Uh, self notice not to open grinder in the morning or not to open grinder at all in other countries in this time. And someone uh, wrote to me, also thought about it in, in the previous episode, someone wrote to me very short sentence, Israel equal Nazi. Mm -hmm. Shall we explain our listeners how it cannot be possible, this sentence? It's a very nefarious claim that's become all too commonplace. Uh, and it's exhausting to even... The idea that it even needs to be explained is exhausting. Back really quick, I want to backtrack a second to the river from the river to the sea. I just want you to know that it's now I've seen numerous videos online of people asking people who are chanting that what it means or from what river to what sea, and they literally can't answer. We're talking about twenty-two, twenty and twenty-two-year-old college students who are saying this and don't even know what they're talking about. Um, but back to the Nazi claim, I, it, it's baffling to me because it means one of two things when people say that. It means either they don't know what Nazis did to Jews and, and to other minorities, including queer minorities. It means that they really don't know or they know and they know that it is the most cruel thing you can accuse a Jewish person of being. And in either case, they have no place to speak on that. Like, they really don't have a right to say anything. When has Israel ever, in a span of maybe six or seven years, rounded up Palestinians, intentionally starved them, tortured them, did medical experimentation on them, put them in work camps, burned them alive in incinerators and murdered six million of them. When has that ever happened? It hasn't. So it's a, it's it, again, either they don't know what they're saying or they're saying it to be incre incredibly cruel and to turn around and say, look at how evil the Jews are, that they were able to take this horrible thing that happened to them and then intentionally 
inflict the same atrocities onto another group of people. And in some ways, it's a little bit mind-numbing to have to make this sort of distinction because if we look at what happened on October 7th, the way that people were massacred, all of the different atrocities that happened on that day were more in alignment with what Hamas did was more in alignment with what happened in Nazi Germany. And so the way that is being completely erased and treated as an undertone and then flipped back on top of us as, oh, it's the fault of Jews that this ha- that they were massacred. Um, and on top of that, we're going to call you the same by the same name as the folks that slaughtered six million Jews in Germany and in, in Europe. Um, it just it's mind boggling, and and it goes to show the the degree of lack of information, a lack of awareness, and apathy that we're seeing. Where it's like people are just absorbing whatever the latest talking point is that the most popular person is saying without doing any sort of due diligence on their own. It sounds like we're in a time that um, it's very easy for people to hide themselves between. behind some kind of a wall or a phone and then it makes it way easier to just upload in VR whatever they have in mind without having any consequences for that and we are generally in a time of lots of lots of fake news lots of violence in digital media probably today it's way more difficult to pass information and education when people are looking for the most uh, shortest response, short messages without seeing complexibility. Uh, how do you think that maybe are there any tools or stuff that we can do to try and make it a bit better or it's a fight that uh, we cannot win? Yeah, yeah. I'll say the first thing that comes to mind here for me is around disconnecting, stepping away from social media and actually having conversations with people that you may not agree with. You know, there's this, there's something about being behind a keyboard where people feel empowered to say whatever nonsense they, they want to say and be as harmful or toxic. Um, but it looks very different when you have to have a conversation in person with someone. And I think that this is a trend line that I've seen, not just within queer, queer spaces, but across the board between Jews and non-Jews, between people that you've had deep relationships with as allies that are now silent. And I feel like a lot of those relationships could be re-strengthened through in-person, heart-to-heart conversations. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that it's the world of social media has made it way too easy for people to release. I just feel like people are releasing whatever angst or anger they have within themselves. And I think at this point, oh, it's really interesting. I feel like on the extreme right, The punching bag is queer people and Jewish people. And on the far left, the punching bag is Zionist, a.k.a. Jewish people. And I feel like people are just, it's become very easy for people to misdirect any anger they have or whatever they're, whatever's going on with them in their personal lives. And they need like a release. And I think it used to be that you would just go to a therapist and now it's like, no, let me spend five hours <laughs> finding whatever content I can online that I can go in and try to ruin somebody's day by telling them that they're A, B, C, and D, like a Zionist pig that should burn in hell or whatever it is that they're saying. So as Nate said, I second that step away. 
put your phone down, watch a movie, go hang out with friends. And there is something to be said for having in-person conversations because there's a lot of nuance that you lose on social media. And I also want to name that the voices that we see on social media are allowed minority that's not to take away from the fact that it is in i believe that it is indicative of uh opinions and feelings and thoughts that are broader feelings and thoughts within society as a whole but it doesn't necessarily mean that's what everyone is if i believed what the people are saying to me in my comment section are actually saying that in real life i would never leave right. the house like i would just not out of fear, like genuinely, if I left the house, like I'd be attacked on every, like every two steps that I took. It's important to put, to take that perspective as well. I think it's a very important reminder. It's also a reminder for myself because sometimes those very um, difficult opinions to, to hear, they sometimes have so much of, of effect. And you know, like when we look at stuff on social media, it's not like seeing a whole crowd and then seeing, okay, it's like one out of a thousand who might have those uh, Yeah, opinions. I think along those same lines, if you were to pay attention, if you were to look at social media as the litmus test of, of what our true climate is towards acceptance of Jews across the board or what's going on between the Israel-Hamas war, you would think that everybody hands down it was in alignment with um, in saying Israel's this horrible country, X, Y, and Z. But uh, Jewish Federations just conducted a poll, and I believe it's something, um, uh, what is it? Only something, let's see, what is it? It's uh, only 15% of the general North American population believe that Israel is at fault. But if you're paying attention to social media, it would make it seem like 75% of North American population as a whole holds Israel as a sole, sole culprit in what's going on between the Israel-Hamas war. Um, and so it just shows how like these echo chambers that are built can really feed into the, re reinforce themselves and feed into these narratives. The other thing that I'll mention um, ar around the, this whole idea is the fact that um, I lost my train of thought. You know, it's really mind-boggling, by the way. Oh, that's what it was. It's the fact that AI plays a role in this. Mm. There's there. It's not by mistake that any time a Jewish influencer or anyone that was speaking about the situation that wasn't necessarily um, focused on Palestinians or what was happening with Hamas, it was no mistake that those comments would be flooded by nothing but like negative information. And then you go and try to research who these accounts are, and they're all shell accounts. There are all these things that are happening behind the scenes that are also influencing what people are seeing and what's getting amplified based on uh, overall interactions with whatever post it is. And I think a lot of folks aren't really noticing that, and that created a further jump on the bandwagon impact of someone saying, oh, this content generated a thousand comments for this other person. So I think it's time for me to step out and comment on this same thing in this same way because it's going to garner the same sort of interaction or uh, more people must be in alignment with this thinking because uh, there's a confirmation bias around who's actually in the, in alignment with whatever that thought process is. Kind of feeling being part of something or being part right. of some group. Yeah. So we're back from break, and we had some some stuff. M Matthew, you're also a stage performer, right? 
No, not really. I used to be more so than I am now. I, but I do drag, but I don't perform per se. I tried performing. I didn't enjoy it. It's not glamorous to me to perform in some bar to have someone throw dollar bills at you. Like, it's just not, <laughs> that's not my fantasy. <laughs> what is your, what was, or still the, your drag name? The Empress Mizrahi. The Empress Mizrahi, I already like it. So, uh, Empress for... Empress Mizrahi, not knowing drag, I want to give you a moment of the mic here, okay? okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to talk about, um, I, I think people in Israel might not see or hear about, and in fact, again, a lot of people don't see or hear about the fact that there are a lot of non-Jewish Iranian allies to Israel right now. I can name a handful of Iranian activists who are not Jewish, who are staunchly standing by Israel, and including the former crown prince of Iran himself, the Reza Pahlavi. There's a deep connection between Iran and Israel. And when it comes to the war and what's happening now, I think that the people of Iran are, A, really tired of the Islamic Republic regime forcing anti-Israel propaganda down their throat. They see through it. They know what it is. And one of the popular chants at the protests is not Lebanon, not Syria, not Gaza, meaning they're tired of money that should be spent on bettering their life. And there are parts of Iran where they don't have clean water. Iran has an incredible amount of resources and money. Why are they spending it to fund terrorism, the Houthis, the Hezbollah? And Hamas, they've woken up to that. They see through it. And additionally, they see, if they're constantly telling us that it's bad and everything that they stand for is bad, then they're wrong. So there's that. And so a lot of Iranians feel like the fight against Hamas is the same as the fight against the Islamic Republic regime. So we're kind of on the same side. Now, that doesn't speak for everybody. Obviously, Iran is a massive country with a population of 90 million people and then all of the diaspora Iranians. But you're seeing a lot of it. And um, the, I think the idea of free Iran, once Iran is a free, is freed from the Islamic Republic regime and is a liberal democracy, there will be this partnership which will change the sphere of, of the Middle East completely. And Iranians really recognize that. So, yeah. If we're going to go off <laughs> for a second, which is something I really take liberty to do, I think that the, the one of the things that's at the forefront for me right now, and this particularly is something that a lot of Jews of color, uh, particularly Black Jews, are grappling with, is um, the... The challenges around allyship within our non-Jewish Black community. But this is something that I know, and it by no means is it everybody, but for a lot of folks, it's been really painful to be in a place where, you know, people that you know and love have now gone radio silent um, when it comes to the conflict between Israel and Hamas. And particularly with the work that I do, as building inclusive environments, it's becoming it's become exceedingly more challenging to say the words "Black Lives Matter" because people, as soon as they hear that, they automatically associate that with organizational beliefs and strategies versus just the fundamental fact 
that Black Lives Matter, whether you're American or whether you're Israeli, whether you're Ethiopian, it doesn't, it, that doesn't matter. It should be that all Black Lives Matter. But what I think that a lot of folks have been seeing within social media discourse and within our own individual friendships is silence from the same folks that we've been in a relationship with that are able to, in other ways, chew on the nuance of identity and understand that, you know, there are different parts of who, of what make us who we are and being able to accept that until you add Jewish or Israeli to the mix. And then it's like, no, we're going to go ahead. We're going to turn our backs. And this is something that is just really, really challenging to sit with the fact that People that were murdered on October 6th, there were uh, Jews of color that were murdered. Um, there's this false narrative that Israeli equals Jewish, white-identified European. Um, and that is so far from the truth of what the diversity of Israel looks like. Um, and it's challenging. It's challenging to see how folks that you generally will be in alignment with erasing your identity. Because it's like if we're working from this narrative that all Jews look a certain way, it means that there's no space for me as a black Jew uh, for my identity to exist, nor does it create space for all of my friends and loved ones that currently live in Israel, uh, their experience to be acknowledged and uh, brought forward. The other thing that I'll mention here is the challenge of allyship. For the few of our courageous allies, there's a tremendous opportunity cost that they incur for speaking up and speaking out on our behalf. Um, and I think that in some ways, our broader Jewish community really has to acknowledge and hold close to their heart the folks that are willing to stand up and speak up um, for our safety and security, uh, because we have to recognize that when that individual or those organizations go back to their community, sometimes they're met, or oftentimes they're met with extreme backlash for standing up for us. And if we don't acknowledge that, for some of them, they may say, well, it's too high of an opportunity cost for us to step up and speak out. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, that's the last thing that, that we need. I see in more and more um, movements, first of all, I have to say that I, that I agree that sometimes um, for us, it's easier to see situations when making make them yes or no, or uh, black or white, top or bottom, straight or gay, woman or men. Our minds many times are shaped in such way, and also when uh, seeing the different people and um, discourses, like the, maybe there, there is no real movement, or sometimes when we have people who say that they are for movement, it's like just the example of the Gay Liberation Front, the GLF, but like when the Stonewall riots and and the, lots of the people who were very active. Uh, with activism, there were actually the minorities within the queer minorities. We had the examples of Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera that it took decades after decades that they started to get some kind of recognition. But when the uh, gay movement uh, started, there was this example in which in one of the parades, if I remember correctly, I think it was in 73, that Sylvia Rivera was not allowed to go on stage uh, for not, for how we say it, but like there was like of some uh, lesbian women activists who did not agree with you would go on stage because the film was about feminism on the terrorists. And she she was uh, back then I think was not identified as transgender, but she identified as a transvestite, right? So like we we even here, um, I think that we can always learn a lot about history 
from history. Like in many ways, we don't have to invent the wheel. And maybe sometimes in order to make a better future, we have to learn from the past. And this is just like another example of a situation in which some people who say that they are the movement, they are the people who represent maybe not necessarily true. I hear it also maybe also with both of your examples. Yeah, I mean, I think to, to that, it's really important to recognize that even within our queer community, we're not immune to the socialization that happens in broader society. Um, and I think that's very true of what happened during the Stonewall riots and why it took so many decades for uh, the main folks that were out throwing bricks to be recognized um, because in a lot of ways, pride became commercialized. And what sold was perfectly built, Donis-type, wide-identified guys in Speedos and without, with, without very much space for folks like me to exist um, as, as well. Uh, and it wasn't until recently, within the maybe the past few years, that there's been a tremendous shift towards creating more inclusion. And we see this as the same thing that happens in broader society. And so I think in a lot of ways, sometimes people feel like our queer community gets a pass because, okay, we're accepting of everybody's uh, sexual identity and gender identity, but the same sorts of isms that people experience in broader society are there. Um, within gay spaces as a trans man myself, I know I'm not always welcome. And that's something that is indicative of where we're at in society. Whereas as a whole, to be gay, lesbian, bisexual is a lot more acceptable than for someone to say that they're transgender or non-binary. And that just, it just shows that we have a long ways to go as a whole. And by no are, are we there yet, but it's just really interesting. It makes me curious about what five years from now will look like and what will be the big thing that we're trying to tackle then after we've created all inclusion for all gender identities. <laughs> the point. I love it. I'm so glad that we're also recording in video. <laughs> Only this week started. <laughs> to that, let me just add and, and to what you were speaking about. So I feel like it's really, really important for us as a society and as societies to stop thinking in binary than in absolutes and especially political absolutes. Like we, that's all I'll say about that. And to find a space find the space within ourselves to just live and let live. I feel like there's a tremendous loss of that vibe these days. So, yeah. Yeah. I'll just tackle one thing because now I'm fired up. <laughs> it's also really interesting or telling the impacts that the lack of inclusion have on our queer community as a whole. You know, because it's like if everybody assumes that if you're Jewish and you're queer, you're secular, or, or reform, it erases the fact that we have orthodox queer folks. Um, and it doesn't make space for their experience as well. But it's something that in a lot of orthodox spaces around the world, being LGBTQ plus is still very much a taboo and, and something that people cannot outwardly express. Granted, there are small pockets of communities where a trans Jew can be accepted or a same-sex couple can be accepted, but that is not by and large the standard. And you know, when we just think well, that's just people that are from and they they don't have anything to do with our community, it's recognizing that um, being a queer person does not limit you to a specific uh, political ideology. 
And it's a lot also about breaking stereotypes. The fact that we are now talking about uh, the horrible war in situation does not mean necessarily that uh, the three of us were sharing the same political views, for instance. Yes, like what we're talking um, a lot here is about something which is very basic, that we, we cannot allow any kind of a brutal violence, no, no matter what group is doing that. And especially for us, for activists and people, people with ha- having so many different identities, we cannot allow any kind of violence, no matter to what kind of minority. Talking about le- learning from history and about people who are silent. That's, I'm sorry for the for the example but that's maybe what allowed the holocaust because like this whole thing is that people say like they were monsters they were not a uh, people or even things that are being said in the current situation but no they were people it's our people and if we will be quiet and uh, even if it's always when i give my lectures about the queer uh, communities uh, always i finish with so what can we do and in in my belief and i believe in tikkun uh, olam um, and we also say it starts that if we see someone even in bus in street that uses the word gay as a curse, so we must do something. We cannot be quiet about situation. That's my opinion. No, there's a work, work, as the saying goes, silence is death, right? We cannot stay silent about any of that, is particularly when it comes to LGBTQ plus issues. And I think that it's really important to there's a lot of people who have this idea that when you confront them on it they they might say they don't get it or they don't understand or they don't agree with it and my retort to that is you don't need to get it you don't need to understand it and you don't need to like it but you will respect it and I think it's important to also bring up I know I'll leave it there but I have to say that this is the first time ever that I've heard, if I remember correctly, the way you, uh, Matthew, you just said it, that qu- quiet is death. Silence equals silence. Silence equals death. Can you explain that? It's the first time it's I hear it. out in the 80s with the AIDS uh, epidemic, and essentially it was not spoken about. Like Ronald Reagan never, it took him a really, really long time to even say the word AIDS, much less address it. So there was this massive movement from within the LGBTQ plus community to gain awareness and get funding for AIDS research. And that's where the phrase silence equals death originated from. Am I right, Nate? I'm not no, wrong. I believe that's okay. right. Yeah. It was a, back then it was a taboo. You could you'd have to say that person has, like families would say that the person with AIDS had cancer um, or something mm-hmm. other than that disease or that disease, it wouldn't be named. And to that vein, I think that for a lot of folks, after the beginning of the war, there was this question, like, you know, and I even had it myself being like, who of my ally friends, if things came, got to the worst case scenario, would actually take me in? Because it's like you think about that silence and it's like, okay, the folks that are silent, that silence may mean complicity. The one other thing that I'll note here is that a little bit of a nuance is that for some, there are a lot of folks that just don't know what to say because we're in an environment of cancel culture and you're not and they're not sure who exactly is going to cancel them based on what they say or they feel like they don't know enough and don't have enough of the depth of knowledge around the issues in order to speak up and so as a way to not put their foot in their mouth they just stay silent not really seeing that saying something 
is better than just not saying anything at all. I agree and I disagree. I agree in the sense of it really doesn't take much to say at the very least, what happened on October 7th was a devastating travesty and should never happen. And I'm sorry you or your people or your are going through this. But where I disagree is that sometimes I feel like more people would just not say anything because there's a lot of people. I, I would rather you not say anything than say something. You have to stake it. Like epidemic and overly confident people who I don't understand where they so confidently get behind these statements that are so either historically inaccurate or just inaccurate to what's happening. It's like, how are you so confidently saying these things? Those are the people I, I just shut up. Don't talk. We don't need to hear this bullshit opinion. We don't need to hear you regurgitate what someone else has said. We've already heard it from that person. So just stop. Oh, you know? no, 100%. <laughs> there are some folks that need to sit down, have a few seats, and drink some iced tea. <laughs> but for the folks that are like in that middle ground, and I, and I think about within creating inclusive spaces for Black folks and people of color. So many times, folks that would see themselves as white identified allies come up after the fact and say, oh, I wanted to say something, but I didn't know what to say and I didn't know how to say it, so I didn't say anything. And for those types of folks that are like in alignment and understand the importance of all communities feeling safe, this is a time to start flexing those muscles. Uh, it's hard if, you know, like I said, if, if only, you know, 15% of, of our North American population are in alignment with one opinion, if more people were speaking up and speaking out versus that, that loud, the loud group on the side, it would make a difference in shifting the tone and the narrative in our Absolutely. I have so many more questions and topics to, to raise here, but we are, we are about to finish. And before we finish, I would really would like to raise my last thought or question. And we had several motives here about um, silence or not silence or like talking about the stuff and about how it's not exactly parallel and balanced between the minority of people who have uh, so much to say without uh, sometimes uh, really knowing what we're talking about and about the yeah. consequences that it has, especially in age which is uh, full of uh, digital content and social media and and maybe less of uh, of 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 education and also circles of acceptance and also education it's a very long process maybe and we talked also about uh, about history and about different events and i i think um, my last question would be and i'm saying i think because i've really have you many more and already i thank you for this opportunity and like this event that this horrible event that happened in october in october 7 i think that we're we still don't know about the outcomes that it will have. Um, also in the previous episode, I, I we spoke about it together with Reba Egger. And it, it feels like this event, which is still very tra traumatic and leads to lots of emotions. And just like with any kind of trauma, uh, in trauma, many times we, we tend to you know, decide to put some, some stuff under the cover. And um, I think that for sure that this event probably will be remembered for in, in times of history and especially in, in, in Jewish history. 
I think that this is the most horrible massacre and like that happened since the Holocaust and we saw uh, so many videos and evidences of a situation that completely broke the Israeli society. Maybe also from being broken, this will be a kind of a reconstruction. We we don't know and what will be the outcomes of, of that. But I think that for sure this event will be memorized and people will talk or know about it even thousands of years from now. So let's say maybe if not even going thousands years to, to the future. What? message maybe do you have or hope that you have for let's say five years or 50 years from now in terms of the conflict you take it wherever you want <laughs> but, in ter- but in terms of the whole Jewish discourse in terms of acceptance of having different identities and in the memory of queer legacies or queer Jewish legacies or Jewish legacies, like this event, for instance, changed even the legislation in Israel in related to acceptance of partners of soldiers who lost their life in, 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 in the war, which is something, by the way, that for many years there were different attempts to, to change this situation. But we definitely saw how at once there was such a... An event which is, it's like a mark, it's like, it's a trim, it's a cut, like there, there must be something probably, I'm sorry, there must be something probably different uh, from here. What do you think would be different? And what message would you hope that will be standing for the future? And also for our queer allies, maybe, let's hope maybe this episode will be in some archive, in some uh, <laughs> future museum, let's say. What message do you think it's important that people will have who didn't necessarily live in our time. I think for me, what comes to mind that's really important is to look at history and the macro and the Jewish history in larger scale. If you zoom out and look, the time of acceptance that Jews had was really minimal. It was essentially, I always say the only time Jews were ever popular was right after the Holocaust. And we're seeing that kind of start to fizzle out now, 70, 80 years later. So what that tells me, and this isn't to sound grim, and it's not to say we don't have allies, but the what's obvious to me, in my mind, is that at the end of the day, we have each other and we're on our own. And I'm not saying that to be dramatic. I'm saying that because in my mind, that's a matter of fact. And I think what October 7th did is shook up a realization within a lot of Jewish people that we really we need to continue and we need to really buckle down and unify and that did in fact happen for the most part i've never seen the jewish world as unified as it is right now with the exception of the jvp then if not now and all of those kinds of people. and i think that what i would like to see moving forward once everything dies down from this current war is a maintenance of that acceptance and not only a maintenance of it but a growth of it with the understanding that wow we really do need to stick together we really do need to be a united front as jewish people and because at the end of the day we are all we've got 
so I genuinely hope that a lot of conversations and growth comes from all of this. And I hope that it's not, I don't want us to only be unified in times of necessity. I want us to be unified all the time. Um, and that includes queer Jews, because whether people want to hear it or not, we do exist and we're not going to go anywhere. And I, and I listen, the more right-wing Jews love it when I say Israel exists and it's never going to go anywhere. And they're going to also need to learn to love that Hulu Jews exist and are not going to go anywhere. So, yeah. I, I would second that about us not going anywhere. I know for sure I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. I'm going to continue to be as loud mm -hmm. and proud as I am. I think I would lean in a little bit of a, a different direction as far as what my hope would be. I'm thinking about the fact that after October 7th, there was not a time to process grief and heal. It was immediately everyone needed to switch on to the defensive to, to focus on the fact that people were saying that when what we were saying happened didn't actually happen or that the innocent people that lost their lives deserved to lose their lives. Um, and so I think that what I would love to see is that in the future, um, people believe what we say when we say it. It's in the same vein as like with as a black man. I know that I experience racism when I move through the world. And so if I tell someone that I'm experiencing racism, if they say, well, that's not what happened, prove it, um, that's gaslighting. And so I, what I, my hope is, is that across the board, we're able to acknowledge that anti-Semitism is real, anti-Semitic related violence is real. And when you look at the Venn diagram of being Jewish and queer, that anti-queer violence and anti-Semitic violence means that there's a, du a double target on folks' backs. And so my real hope is that we're able to both digest that as a reality and move forward to a moment where that's not the case, where, as Matthew said, when you walk out your door, you're not bombarded by the idea that, oh, somebody might harm you just for your identity, which is something that I think about when I walk outside of my door every day. And, you know, there's no mezuzah on my front door for that reason, because I cannot, it's too dangerous for me for where I live to be saying, hey, a Jew lives here. And so I think that really what I hope for is that in, in the there will be a time in the future where we can just move towards this idea of Pitzelam Elohim, that every person is in the image of God, regardless of what country they came from, what their skin color is, or what their, their sexual identity or preference is. Amen. Amen. Can I add my own hope? <laughs> Please. No. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Please. I really think that um, being a queer minority or minorities, I think that uh, this is the most unique minority in, in the world. Because unlike other minorities, uh, when we were born, nobody told us that we are part of minority. We had to explore it all by ourselves. And one of the things that unites us is about having some similar experience, or I think I would say even similar pain. And I think that in order to bring tolerance, we must learn and recognize the other's people's pain. And my hope that queer communities who are everywhere, no matter what kind of society, um, I do believe that queer communities can have lots of role in healing processes of societies. So it was very painful for me uh, to see when this whole thing happened, some of my uh, friends, including they were a minority, but uh, now I realize they were a minority. When I saw some uh, queer Arab 
activists that they shared stories with smiling faces from the event like for me it was i think this was for me the biggest trauma it was for me more traumatizing than uh, knowing about some people um, uh, who i knew that uh, died in in, uh, in the last event so my hope that especially with such a special minority that we will take our strengths for for tolerating and empowering rather than cutting or discriminating each other but we will use our powers so i really hope that we will have some chance also in the future to meet maybe not also only in digital way maybe we can have some time a, a shabbat uh, together i'm in love with cbsd i have to say i wish we could have have something like that in in Israel, and I really thank you very much. And it's so it's a tov lehodot. So toda raba raba. Thank you very much. Toda raba to you. Toda raba. Thank you so much.